Welcome to the Religion Compass podcast. Hello, I'm Tamara Son. And I'm Scott Nagel. We're the editors-in-chief of Religion Compass, and we'd like to take this opportunity to tell you a little about the journal. Religion Compass is an online-only journal publishing peer-reviewed survey articles from across the entire discipline of religious studies. We also have a lively companion forum called Religion Compass Exchanges, which publishes polemical posts from leading scholars in addition to regular items on religion in the news. We discuss scholarly issues surrounding selected articles and posts in an accessible and lively manner with a view to encouraging the practical implementation of the work of the journal. Enjoy the talk. Hello and welcome to the first podcast for Religion Compass Exchanges. I'm Matthew Feldman, one of the four editors of the political religion section of Religion Compass. I'm joined here today by Anna Soaj, who's one of the newest editorial board members of political religion, as well as a doctoral student at the University of Granada studying the evolution of Islamism. The subject of our discussion today is going to be the nature of contemporary and modern politicized Islam. Now, Anna, I'm hoping that you can give us your view as both a European and a longtime resident in the Middle East. First of all, on the question of terminology. We hear a number of different terms thrown around. Fundamentalist Islam, political or politicized Islam, Islamism. Is there a preference amongst scholars working in the field? Well, I think that fundamentalism, like its French equivalent, uh, antichrism, they come from a different religious tradition, a Christian religious tradition, which is basically about interpreting the Bible literally, like seeing historical facts in the Bible. Whereas from that point of view, all Muslims are fundamentalists. They all, they all believe that the Quran is the revealed uh, word of God, and they believe literally. That is why I don't like the term fundamentalism. It has been translated into Arabic. They call it usulia, which comes from uh, usul, foundations. And there's also another term, salafia, from salaf, the pious ancestors, but they refer to something different. They refer to movements like the Deobandi movement in, in India, which is also present in, in Britain, which are not really politicized. When we think of groups like uh, Hezbollah or Hamas or the Muslim Brotherhood or Iran now, under the, the Islamic regime, that's a politicized form of Islam. That's why I prefer to use the term political Islam or Islamism. There is also an equivalent in Arabic for that. They, they talk about el-Islamiyun, the Islamist. So if the terms Islamism or political Islam seem to you to be more clear and more explanatory than fundamentalist Islam, can we talk in looking closer at Islamism about a difference between moderate and radical Islamists or moderate and radical forms of political Islam? Uh, yes, we could say that moderate Islamists have renounced violence and they believe that they can arrive in power through elections, because they are very popular in the, in the, the Arab world. So they are committed to, to being a part of the democratic process. Whereas radical Islamists, they believe that the way to bring about an Islamic order is through jihad, through armed struggle. But I believe that both have the same objective at the end, which is the implementation of the Sharia, and to have a kind of a Pax Islamica, so what changes is really the way they go about trying to, to reach that objective. But I'm concerned that moderate Islamists, when they talk about accepting democracy, they do it as um, a voting procedure. They're not really committed to democratic values or human rights. If we're talking about implementing the Sharia, the Sharia is 
totally inimical to what we understand by human rights. And in the creation of this Pax Islamica that you mentioned, or the creation of a Middle Eastern Ummah, I wonder if it's relevant to talk about European terms like the distinction between reactionary and revolutionary. Is there, in your view, the idea that Islamism, whether moderate or radical, is intrinsically revolutionary? It, by its very nature, wants to overthrow the status quo? If we, if we think of... Um the Muslim Brotherhood as a moderate movement that totally behind Hamas. Hamas was born as a, a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. In your reading, the difference between moderate Islamism and radical Islamism is the use of violence. Both of these groups are revolutionary, but only radical Islamism would use jihad as a, as a violent way of overturning the status quo. Yes, moderate Islamists believe that they can achieve the same without an armed struggle, and they are more realistic. They know that the balance of power is against them, whereas the jihadists think that God is with them. I mean, they believe that um, they brought about the end of the Soviet Union. So they brought down one of the superpowers in Afghanistan, and they think they can do the same again with the, with the re remaining superpower. Can you give us examples of this distinction between moderate and radical Islamism? Well, the obvious example of radical Islamists is Al-Qaeda. The Muslim Brothers are supposed to be moderates. The distinction is that a moderate Islamists claim to have accepted democracy, and when they can, they take part in the democratic process. Um, whereas radical Islamists believe in jihad as a way to bring about an Islamic order. But that is also the objective of, of the moderates, so it's more like a matter of means and not, and not ends. They both want to have a, an Islamic state with the implementation of the Sharia. So my concern is that moderate Islamists, they have accepted democracy as a voting procedure, but they haven't accepted democratic values. The motto of the Muslim Brothers is, still is, God is our objective, the Quran is our constitution, the Prophet is our leader, jihad is our way, and death for the sake of, of God is the highest of our aspirations. And when, when Hassan al-Banna spoke about jihad, he's got a, an epistle about jihad, he makes it very clear that by jihad he means armed struggle. He rejects any other interpretation of jihad. One of the things that we really consider very closely at Compass Political Religion is the nature of these terms and in fact what they embrace, including the nature and ideology of fascism. One of the terms, of course, that has been applied to political Islam is Islamofascism, particularly in the Anglophone world. Now, I wonder if you have any thoughts about the scholarly use or indeed usefulness of the term Islamofascism. Uh, well, I believe it's uh, an unfortunate term because I do believe political Islam is totalitarian. But when we're talking about Islamofascism, that's associating Islam with fascism instead of associating Islam as a political ideology with fascism. So that's a very offensive term for, for Muslims. That is to say, in a sense, it's lumping both political religions, i.e. secular religions that do not necessarily have a monotheistic, transcendental god like Nazism or communism, right alongside politicized religions, which are perhaps contemporary political manifestation of religious views, like perhaps we see in contemporary Islamism. Well, I think there is a similarity there. A political Islam has been influenced by totalitarian ideologies. But we have to be very clear that we're talking about political Islam or Islamism, not about Islam. And when we say Islamofascism, 
we're putting Islam and fascism together. And that is why the term is so offensive. Can you say a bit more about the experiences of Islamism in its evolution in the 20th century as it bears upon totalitarianism? That's another very large area that our journal considers. And I wonder if any of the experiences of early Islamists, perhaps in the Muslim Brotherhood or elsewhere, have had experiences of fascist or communist versions of totalitarianism. Well, political Islam started with the Muslim Brothers, and they were influenced by, um, by fascism. But fascism was popular at the time throughout the, the Arab world. We have similar movements in, among the Maronites in Lebanon. So it was a, a popular ideology, especially because the Nazis and the fascists in Italy, Italy they were standing up to the colonial powers. And they were being quoted by, well, by, by the Nazis. We all know about the Mufti of Jerusalem going to meet Hitler. And also the idea of Islam as a total system, the idea of Shumuliyat al-Islam, which is the main contribution of uh, Hassan al-Banna to political Islam, is a totalitarian idea. So instead of having the state as the containing everything, you have the idea of Islam as being able to contain everything. So it might be fair to say that some of the evolution of Islamism, at least in the early part of the 20th century, is due to a certain reading of the total state, the abolition of public and private, the idea of a totalizing doctrine that we might find in fascist ideology of the 1920s and 1930s. Oh, definitely. Hassan al-Banna advocated a, a corporate society where the poor were helped through zakat, but they were, they were in their place. He believed that poverty was God's will, and he believed that workers had to be um, responsible to, to God, to themselves, and to the owner of the plant. That is why they were being funded by um, very powerful figures in, in the Egyptian establishment. It was only when they started to, well, to kill people, basically. To, they, killed, they killed a prime minister and uh, an important judge, so after that, they became too dangerous. So Hassan al-Banna was assassinated by the Egyptian secret police in 1949. That was only a month after the movement was outlawed. The Muslim Brotherhood have never found a figure like al-Banna to, to be the charismatic leader. They've had other ideologues, notably Said Qutb, who was able to develop al-Banna's ideas. But really, there was no rupture there. Everybody now blames uh, Said Qutb for the radicalization of the Muslim Brother Society. It isn't true. He just, because he was in prison for 12 years, he had the leisure to develop Albana's thought. Let's move on to our final area of discussion, which is the nature of jihadism and political Islam. I think that if one were looking at the demographics through the newspapers and through the mass media, the ideal Islamic might be male, working class, uneducated, perhaps not very intelligent, nihilistic, bent on destruction. I wonder how you feel about those characterizations of what might make a perfect jihadi. Well, social studies show that the average jihadi or radical Islamist is young, so under 35, comparatively highly educated, very often they've been to university, and in fact, uh, groups like this, the Muslim Brotherhood are very strong at university. They're the strongest student union, uh, consistently. And uh, so talking about them as uneducated is just not right. But perhaps it's comfortable 
for victims of terrorism or Europeans to think about the destruction caused by radical Islamic groups such as Al-Qaeda and only look at the people who carry out such atrocities as either brainwashed, stupid, or in some way nihilistic, that is, bent on destruction rather than having any coherent set of values. And so I wonder if we can talk about the distinction between this nihilistic, destruction-based ideology and what might be closer to a utopian form of thinking. Well, I believe, I don't think they consider themselves nihilist in any way because they're doing what they're doing for a reason. And uh, I think they are utopian, but that's not how they see themselves. They believe that they will be helped by God to bring about God's order. A suicide bomber, when he goes, uh, blows himself up and, well, killing other people, he believes that, that he's part of the divine plan, basically. So he's doing it for a reason. So from that point of view, he can't be considered a nihilist. We could think he's utopian, but they really believe that God will help them. This seems very similar to the experience of studying fascism uh, amongst scholars in the last 20 years or so, who have moved away from the idea that fascists are simply nihilists bent on destruction and looked at certain ideas and messages that they might consider positive. What kinds of things might be considered positive, things that an Islamist might be for, might be seeing themselves as struggling on behalf of? Well, looking at Islamism, it is definitely a reaction to, to the West and to secularism because they have taken from Islam those aspects which are different to the West and might magnify them. So they only concentrate on the differences. But they believe that they, their interpretation of Islam is the good one. They do believe in what they're doing. And also there are a number of logical reasons that we could consider, like when the Palestinian or Iraqi suicide bombers commit a, an attack in, in their countries, they're trying to make the occupation expensive. And they look at the way Israel withdrew from South Lebanon uh, and from Gaza, and they think it works. They saw that as a victory, even though it was so costly. And also, in the case of Palestine, they're also looking at socioeconomic advantages for, for their families. Because it's well known that somebody like Saddam Hussein, or well, the Iranians, they pay the families of suicide bombers. So they'll be taken care of. And Hezbollah does the same. In many respects, it's also an act of desperation and revenge. A Palestinian youth with no prospects and who's never, who's never been outside a refugee camp, or who's never, who doesn't know anything by occupation, he doesn't have anything to live. For him, committing a, an act of suicide, which is going to lead him to heaven, taking revenge on those people who are occupying his land, is uh, reasonable. So what other kinds of factors might motivate an individual to join a revolutionary group like an Islamist sect in the Middle East? Well, there's also the, the social prestige attached to becoming a martyr. There is a martyrdom cult in places like Palestine or Iraq. Even in, among Muslims, they are a minority. We can't forget that. But we saw it in, in, the, in the UK, people who were born here, but still they were attracted to martyrdom. So a final question to you, Anna, as a scholar of political Islam. In your view, what might be the best way to counter this revolutionary doctrine? Well, I think it's something we can't do. It's something the Muslims themselves have to do. I think they have to take a look at their religion and the way it's going to move forward. Because the problem at the moment is that they, they're just refusing point blank to say that Islamism is based on, on Islam. 
They just say, well, those people don't represent us. But the foundation of Islamic thought is Islam. So un unless they take a hard look at their legacy and uh, are prepared to, to be self-critical, um, I don't think we'll be seeing the end of Islamism anytime soon. Well, if not a particularly reassuring note to end on, certainly one that helps us to understand the nature of Islamism better than we did heretofore. Thank you very much, NSOAJ, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Religion Compass podcast. Please visit the journal site at www.religion-compass.com to find what else Compass can offer you.